Well, I know that many of you are fans of the now tragically canceled but forever cult classic television show, Arrested Development, right? Now, for those of you who don't even know what I'm talking about, Arrested Development was a, a show that ran for about three years that was about an extremely dysfunctional family. This family lived in Southern California, and the father of the family, George Bluth, owned a construction company. Uh, he was a housing developer, mismanaged his funds, that's a, the euphemism there. He uh, embezzled a lot of money, went to prison, and then the family and the family business was in complete disarray. The middle son, Michael, uh, tries to hold everything together. He tries to hold the family and the business together, and, and the show, episode after episode, is just one blunder after another. Each of these characters in the television show presents at least one of the following dysfunctional character traits. There's vanity, insecurity, greed, lust, substance abuse, workaholism, approval addiction, plain foolishness, pride, sibling, sibling rivalry. It's kind of a modern-day modern Gilligan's Island in a way. And what makes the show so funny, to me at least, is that I can see some of my dysfunctional character qualities in these characters. But in the characters, these dysfunctional qualities are so ridiculously over the top, it's, it's amusing. And it actually makes me feel better about myself because I'm not as bad as they are. Now, the show is appropriately titled Arrested Development because even though some of these characters in the show have endearing qualities, they never seem to grow. They never get it. Their development is literally arrested. It's probably why the show ended up having to go off the air because they just didn't go anywhere. Now, in the scripture tonight, we're going to witness yet another encounter between Jesus religious authorities, and his disciples. This evening we are in John chapter 18. 18 chapters into a 21 chapter book about Jesus' life. And we're still witnessing arrested development. The irony is thick in this chapter of the book because those who ought to know what's going on continually prove that they have no clue what's going on and God is right in their midst and they're missing him all over the place. Like the show Arrested Development, one of the features of John's gospel that makes it so appealing and endearing is that in these characters in the gospel, we see little bits of ourselves, little bits of our own dysfunction. John is a master at causing us to ask questions. And this evening, I want us to think about two questions in particular. If you're a note taker, open up your bulletin. There's a little spot for notes in there. Two questions. Whom do I seek? And how do I seek? Whom do I seek? And how do I seek? Would you please stand with me as I read the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas, also who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. 
But Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? You may be seated. So over the the past few chapters, Jesus has been speaking plainly about leaving this world. He's been talking to the disciples that he's got to go, he's got to die. And then when that happens, the Holy Spirit was going to come and empower them. He shared with his disciples a a period of most intimate prayer, which we're actually going to come back to in in a month or so, in John 17. And in this prayer, he, he begs of the Father that the disciples that are left behind would have unity in love and in purpose with one another. And after he says these things, he declares these things and prays these prayers, he led them out of the city center, outside the city, over the Kidron Valley, and to the Mount of Olives where there was a garden where he used to meet and and draw out with his disciples. Now, Scripture tells us that Judas was betraying him and knew exactly where Jesus would be because Jesus went there all the time. In other words, think about this. Jesus took his disciples to a place he knew he would be found. He went to a place he knew he would be found. So, no no, uh, big surprise, Judas leaves the authorities right to Jesus. And John implies that there were several groups here uh, all at once. First, there were the religious authorities. And these kind of look at like two main groups. There was the Pharisees, who were the laity. These were lay leaders, and uh, they're kind of the guys that Jesus butts heads with a lot in John's Gospel. So they are there in the garden. And then there's the chief priests, who are from the temple. These guys are in charge of the temple. Uh, They're actually the ordained guys, and... And they're there at the garden as well. And then there's temple guards. The the chief priests were in charge of these temple guards. And these were uh, Jewish guards who would be at the temple. And they came as well. So you've got this Jewish contingent. And then there were uh, supposedly Roman soldiers. Now the Jewish leaders probably asked for for some reinforcements in order to hunt down Jesus and capture him. A lot of times the thinking is, uh, especially during seasons like Passover where there's just, the the city is swelling with people. Uh, Listen, if we have more soldiers there, there's less of a chance for a riot. So you've got Jewish religious leaders, temple guards, and Roman soldiers. Now the scriptures say that there was a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort is a thousand men. 
A thousand men. Now, in reality, these cohorts often functioned in groups of 200 called maniples. So in Jerusalem for Passover, you might have a whole cohort of Roman soldiers, a thousand people, but then you'd have maniples, groups of 200 set up in different sectors of the city, and they would maintain the peace. In reality, there's probably just one maniple or one part of a maniple here at the garden. So there's still well over a hundred Roman soldiers and the temple guards and the Pharisees and the chief priests. And so I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a minute. You know the authorities are not only seeking to arrest you, they're seeking to kill you. You're outside at night in a garden of olive trees where you know you're going to be found. You went there on purpose to be found. And now you hear the boot stomps and clanking weapons of somewhere around 200 soldiers, guards, chief priests, and Pharisees, and they're coming your way. Oh, and the guy leading them to you has been one of your best friends for three years. What's your reaction? What's your reaction? What do they do in the movies in situations like this? Jesus and 11 disciples, not because Judas isn't there, so you got 12 guys. Well, in all the great kung fu movies, the 12 guys take on the 200 and clean house, right? I mean, this is what great films are made of. If I was writing this story, that's exactly what would happen. Jesus would be like, or Jesus would be like, uh, like Neo in the Matrix and just be taking everybody out. That doesn't happen. Uh, oh, well, then there's the YouTube clip going around, right? The uh, awkward questions about Jesus with the two cute British kids. Have you seen this one? Uh, these two cute British kids are talking to a vicar, and uh, one of them says, When Jesus was older and the Romans were searching for him, why didn't he shapeshift into a Roman? And when the Romans were sleeping, stab them at night. And the vicar, of course, my accent is horrible, but just go with me. Well, I suppose Jesus wasn't a Power Ranger or anything. And so, I mean, but, but there's questions, right? You've got the God of the universe in the garden. If it's you, how do you react to this force coming at you? The scriptures tell us that Jesus knew all the things that were about to come upon him. And you know what it says he did? He went forth. He went out and met this force. He got in between the advancing soldiers and his disciples and he met them. And then he asks a question. Have you been noticing this as we've been working through John's Gospel that Jesus' most powerful weapons sometimes are his questions that have been piercing your heart and mine as we've been wrestling with them? And here he asks a question, whom do you seek? What confidence? Wouldn't you just love to be like behind a tree witnessing this whole thing? How did this go down? And I guess the question I've been wrestling with is, why does Jesus ask them who they're seeking? He knows they're seeking him. I have a little theory. I think this, because sometimes it's helpful to have people say things out loud. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I'm not sure if this is a good idea or a bad idea. Try
Try saying it out loud. That would have saved me a lot of grief in fifth grade when I fell off a roof on a pinecone fight. All I would have had to say was, 10-year-old boy, pinecone fight on a roof. Does that sound smart? No. When you say things out loud, sometimes it really helps. And I think Jesus here is, whom do you, whom do you seek? Who do you really think you're after? Your force of 200 armed people. All of the, basically, you know what you have when you have Rome and these soldiers and then you have the religious leaders is representing the entire world. Rome was the world empire at that time as far as they knew. And, uh, and then you've got the, the religious leaders there. It's representing the entire world coming at Jesus. And he just wants them to be sure they know who they think they're seeking. Whom do you seek? And the mob replies, Jesus, the Nazarene. Basically, we're looking for a man, just a man named Jesus, who's from a ho-dunk town called Nazareth, whose dad was Joseph the carpenter. That's, that's who we're looking for. Really? Is that who you're seeking? Just Jesus from Nazareth? Because if that's true, why? Why then are you coming with lanterns and torches and weapons and a mob of trained soldiers? If you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, then you would have been looking for a guy who healed people and loved people and taught openly in the temple. He taught openly in the fields throughout Judea and Galilee as well. You had multiple opportunities to question him then in broad daylight. You had multiple opportunities to arrest him. Do you remember what happens when the last time the, the religious leaders, they asked um, their temple guards to go arrest Jesus and the guards come back and, and the leaders say, where's Jesus? Remember what they said? Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Just Jesus the Nazarene. Again, arrested development. John's really laying on the irony here. It's almost laughable. Throughout this gospel, John's been telling us, right, because we have the narrator, John, he's been telling us that Jesus is not from Nazareth at all. Actually, he's from the Father. He's sent from above. He is the Son of God. And when Judas leaves the, uh, the dinner table to be betray Jesus in John chapter 13, it says two important things. He left immediately, and he left at night in the dark. Okay? Now he comes at night with artificial light of lanterns and torches. How ironic is it that he's coming at night with artificial lights, with the forces of the world, and who's he after? The light of the world. He's after the light of the world. These guys have arrested development going on. They don't understand who is right in front of them. They ought to. I think the reason John records this, in fact, I'm certain of it, is not just because it makes a very compelling story. He wants his readers, you and me, to ask the same question. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Who is Jesus? That's the question. The soldiers obviously were looking for Jesus the Nazarene, but they didn't get that Jesus the Nazarene was Jesus the Son of God. Who is Jesus? John gives us the answer. 
Jesus says, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I am. I am. We've been discussing for weeks how when Jesus says, I am, in this way, he's hearkening back to the Exodus account when Yahweh, the creator of the universe himself, declared his identity to Moses, saying the words, I am. When Jesus is saying this to these, these soldiers and these religious leaders, he's not just saying, yeah, I'm Jesus, I'm the guy you're looking for, I, I am he. He's saying, I am, I am the God of the universe. That's why their reaction is so amazing. When Jesus said this, the whole mob drew back and fell to the ground. That is one of my favorite lines in this gospel. They, they, they drew back at the sound of his I am and they fall to the ground. And actually there's uh, many examples in scripture of people lying prostrate involuntarily when they come into the presence of God. And in fact in history beyond the Bible, if you've read any accounts of, of revivals and things like this, people involuntarily do crazy things, bark like dogs and lie prostrate on the ground. And Stuff happens when you're in the presence of God. Whom are you seeking? Jesus the Nazarene. I am. 200 armed killers in, in armor and swords and lanterns and torches. Isn't that awesome? Come on, you can be excited about that. Here in the presence of one who they think is just a troublemaker, Jesus the Nazarene, these hardened soldiers and religious leaders, they fall back. Jesus asks them again, Whom do you seek? See, they have to say it out loud. Do we, who do we really think he is? Just Jesus the Nazarene? We just fell down on the ground. And I imagine, it doesn't say this, but I imagine they get up kind of shaky, but still with resolve. We're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. It reminds me of the, the scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan is going to give himself for Edmund's life. Aslan, the mighty lion, the Christ figure in that story. He comes to the, the witch and her armies and, and gives himself up. And at first, the witch's armies are approaching gingerly. Is it true? Is he really giving himself to us? Because with one swipe of his claw, he could take out 20 soldiers in just a second. And Aslan shows that he's giving himself up, and they bind him in cords and make him basically defenseless. Then they get a false courage. They begin to mock him, take him away. Jesus is giving himself. And this is the glory of God. That our God is not one who zaps and shapeshifts, but one who serves and gives up his life for you and I. Notice again how Jesus goes out from the garden to meet the enemy. He puts distance between the mob and his friends. He stands in the middle. He knows he's going to, to go to a horrible death, but yet Jesus petitions to set his friends free. Jesus takes the full force of evil upon himself. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And here we see that good shepherd 
at work, laying his life down. Take me, but let them go. That's what Jesus is saying. Of those the Father gives him, Jesus loses none. Now that's really good news. Amen? All right. Now notice how Jesus being the good shepherd and losing none has nothing to do with the quality or ability or righteousness of his disciples. Do you notice that? Jesus just stands in the way and says, let them go. The good shepherd shepherds his sheep regardless of their behavior. And this is really good news because the gospel accounts tell us that these disciples, these friends of Jesus, all scatter. They all take off. They're not very good friends to him. But the good shepherd protects those whom the Father gives to him. Now this should blow your mind. Why are you even here tonight? Some of you, because you say, well, my wife dragged me here, or my husband dragged me here, or my mom and dad dragged me here. Or some of you, because you think, well, I just wanted to come. Or some of you, because, well, I felt guilty if I didn't come. I don't know what your reasons are. But did you know that I think you're here because the Spirit of God drew you here? That Scripture tells us that we cannot even desire God without God first drawing us to Him. I think that we are here because we obeyed the call to worship the living God tonight. Whom do you seek? If your answer is Jesus, and you place your trust in Him, the Good Shepherd will not let you go. He takes the full force of evil aimed at you and me and protects us faithfully even when we are not faithful. Did you hear that? He protects you and me even when we are not faithful. Some of you are probably sitting there saying, that's cool for everyone else, but that's not true for me. It is true for everyone. The Good Shepherd protects those because He is faithful. Not because we are faithful. St. Paul wrote, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, so that no one may boast. And I might add, so that no one may despair. Our salvation is a gift of God. We can't earn it. We can't boast about that. But we also need not despair because it's not based on your performance. Do you believe that? Or is your faith development arrested? In the beginning of the message, I had two questions for us. Whom do you seek? And how do you seek? How do you seek? As Jesus is petitioning on behalf of his friends, Here I am. You said you want me, then I'll let my friends go. Peter, perhaps the most zealous of all, the, all of his crew there, he draws a sword and rashly just slashes into the mob. 
Now, some have suspected that when Jesus cuts off the right ear of the slave Malchus, that he's trying to like disfigure this slave so that then the slave wouldn't be able to perform his priestly duties and, and on and on. But I just think that's highly unlikely. Peter's a fisherman, not a swordsman, and then he becomes the disciple of a rabbi oh, who happens to be the Son of God. Now, as much as I... Want to imagine my Jesus as being like uh, a Jedi Knight or something or Zorro? I just don't think that Jesus is giving swordplay lessons after Bible 101. I just don't think Peter's that good with his little sword. So I think what's going on here is Peter is clumsy and zealous and means well, and he slashes into this mob. And Malchus, he sees it coming because Peter's clumsy and slow. He sidesteps and misses by an ear. By the way, I think it's cool that John includes Malchus's name here. That mean, name means really nothing to me. Probably doesn't mean a lot to you either. But the name to a first century reader is something that they could have looked into. Do you realize this? In the other gospel, actually in the gospel of Luke, when Peter cuts off the ear, Jesus touches Malchus's head and, and heals him. Now, if you're a first century skeptic, and you read this name Malchus in this account of the gospel, where do you go? I'm going to the temple. I'm going to find out if there's a slave named Malchus. And I'm going to ask him because he'd have a story to tell if this dude's ear got cut off and then got put back on. And guess what? There's not one eyewitness account that contradicts the gospel account. There were so many people for the first couple hundred years that were against Christianity that would have loved to have found, the, oh, there's no such guy as Malchus, or there's no, this, they found Malchus and this wasn't true. But that's nowhere to be found. So just a little bit to encourage you in your faith. You know, Christianity is a faith, not a science, but it's based on great, great historical evidence. I love that little tidbit. The point is, Peter sought to fight the world's power the world's way. Sword with sword, violence with violence. Maybe he thought, if I, if I just start this thing, I'll force Jesus' hand and he'll shapeshift or something and like whack out these Romans. He doesn't get that. Jesus says, put the sword away. Jesus tells Peter to stand down. Jesus was sent to die, to defeat the powers of evil, not with more violence, but with self-sacrifice. And here's where the question, how do you seek, comes into play. Peter seemed to have a lot of courage and passion and zeal for Jesus as long as he thought Jesus was going to fight and set up his kingdom and power. Peter could get behind that kind of Jesus. But I think Peter was seeking to serve a Jesus made in his own image. You see what I'm saying here? Peter was all ready to get behind Jesus as long as he thought... He'd be like him and fight and show these Romans who's boss. But as soon as Jesus says, no, that's not my way, you got me mistaken. I'm Jesus, Son of God, not Jesus, Nazarene warrior. As soon as Peter realizes that, that Jesus is not who he thought he was, he takes off. In fact, next week we'll see how Peter denies he even knows Jesus. After all those... Three years of intimacy they shared. 
Peter has not learned how to seek Jesus on Jesus' terms. He hasn't learned how to let Jesus come to him. The voices of our world try and tell us what it means to be human. And in, in the West, to be human is, is to be productive and it's to be assertive and it's to be aggressive and ambitious and to take what's yours. And in fact, during the season of Lent, we're encouraged to prepare our hearts for Easter. We're encouraged to draw close to Jesus. And there are those of us who will try and seize Jesus through discipline. There's a mindset, and, and though few of us would admit it, but it's there. If we do the work, right, then Jesus is obliged to bless us. If we don't eat certain foods or if we read our Bibles more frequently, Jesus will have to do something for us, right? How do we seek Jesus? Like Peter, forcing our way in? If I just do A, B, and C, then He will bless me. Well, we might as well be cutting off ears. Our development is arrested if we think that way. But it doesn't have to be. The good news, hear this, the good news is that Jesus is actually always seeking you and me. He wants a relationship with you and I more than we can imagine, more than we want. Which isn't that really good news to hear because let's be frank, aren't there days when, if you're really honest, you're really not thinking too much about Jesus? You're really not wanting to crack open that Bible? You're really not wanting to spend time in prayer? There's those days. Maybe they're more often than not. That's gospel good news is that Jesus is seeking you. He wants you. We don't have to be like Peter and force our way in. So how do we seek Him? We start with the foundational truth that He's seeking us. We remember that He has given us time-tested practices which our ancient fathers and mothers have connected with. As we approach Lent, we approach it as a season of opportunity to meet with the risen Christ. So we might seek Jesus in Scripture reading, in prayer, in silence, in solitude, in fasting, in service, and many of the other disciplines. But these disciplines are not a means of coercion. We can't think of them as, if I do this, if I give up chocolate for Lent, well then, I'm going to be a more spiritual person, or I'll have more of the Holy Spirit. Okay? We can't do these things coercively. But as we engage in spiritual practices, we create space for the one who's seeking us to connect with our heart. If you seek Jesus this evening, I encourage you to wrestle with the question of how. Wrestle with the question of how. How can you use this season of Lent to make yourself available to Jesus, the one who wants to draw you close? There's a couple small groups that are actually doing a Lenten series right now. We're exploring some of the spiritual practices. You're welcome to check those out. I encourage you to do so. 
if you're just stuck devotionally, you want to draw close during Lent, you want to use this time, I would encourage you, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to have coffee with you or to discuss these things. This is actually one of the things that makes me tick as a pastor. So let's talk. Let's talk it out and see how we might make space in our lives for Jesus. Father, I thank you that you are seeking us all the time. One of your ancient nicknames is the Hound of Heaven, on our heels, wooing and drawing us. Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters and myself, I ask your forgiveness for turning a shoulder to you so many times, for creating habits in my life that aren't conducive to hearing you and seeing you. Father, we know we cannot will ourselves to be more spiritual or more holy. But that that's your desire. I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your grace on us. That you would give us grace to take time to listen. To make space in our lives for your sweet presence. Thank you for your plan for us to make each of us like Jesus. And as a starting point, Lord, I pray that you would give us great desire to be like to be like you. Lord, give us great intention to be like you. Thank you for your mercy and grace, Lord. Thank you that your love is not dependent on our performance or our feelings. And with that truth in mind, Lord, we do pray that you would pour out feelings of passion and love for you in our hearts. We want to want you more. And thank you for this season of Lent in the church calendar that causes us to focus and prepare. Lord, make it a special time for each person here. Have your way with us, Lord. Amen.